Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you here. I want to welcome you to Plum Creek, and I also want to say Happy Father's Day to all the dads who are with us. We want to celebrate you and thank God for you. So here's the deal. We know that a lot of guys like meat, so we have a bunch of meat sticks on tables in the back of the room. Uh, we've got barbecue, teriyaki, jalapeno, lots of different flavors. And we also know that some guys might prefer a non-meat option, so there are some mini fruit bars back there as well. And on your way out today, go ahead and pick up two of those items. You could get two meat sticks, two fruit bars, one of each, whatever you want to do. Uh, but we love our dads. We thank God for you. And today is not just about random food items. Uh, this is also a great opportunity to challenge all dads, myself included, to take this role seriously. Now, this is a big responsibility. It is a high calling. And this week, I was looking at different descriptions of what it means to be a dad. And I found a lot of good descriptions out there, but one really resonated with me. I'll put it up on the screen in case you want to write it down and take notes. Being a dad means constantly walking around your house, going into empty rooms, and turning off the lights that somebody left on. I don't know about you, but that is my life, you know. I walk around thinking, do these kids think I'm made of electricity? Ah, so I'm kind of kidding about that. Um, but there are a lot of fun things about being a dad. There are a lot of frustrating things about being a dad. But we need to move on to something deeper. I have a question that applies not just to fathers, but to all of us. It's a big question. What is the greatest contribution that you could make to this world? It would be interesting to go around the room and let everybody answer that question. What kind of answers do you think we would hear? Somebody might say, well, you know, it would be great if you could solve one of the world's big problems, like war or poverty or cancer. Someone else might say, well, you could just keep it simple. Live a life of integrity. Love others well. And those are good answers, no doubt about it. But as I was studying scripture this week, I came across what I believe is the best answer to that question. And here it is. The greatest contribution you can make in this world is pointing others to Jesus. Now, some people might question that answer, but that's what I saw in God's word this week. And I want to share where my conviction comes from. So we're going back to the Bible, back to the story of David. And we're in the second to last week of our series going through the life of King David. And today we're focusing on David's role as a father. Now last week we covered a low point in David's story. We talked about his sin, sin like adultery and deceit and even murder. It wasn't pretty. And after that low point, you might assume that things would get better from here on out. But unfortunately, that's not true since it's Father's Day, I wish I could tell you that David will give us a great example of fatherhood. Um, but actually, uh, he, he gives us a great example of what not to do. Now, last week we saw that David was guilty of some pretty shameful behavior. But today we're moving on to a couple of David's sons. And we're going to see behavior that is even more shameful. And the consequences will affect the entire nation of Israel. 
Uh, to be honest, this story is a raging dumpster fire. And, and you might wonder, like, how did this even make it into the Bible? And that's a legitimate question. Why would God give us a story like this? Uh, I honestly wrestled with that myself this week. But I want you to know, we are going to look at an ugly part of the Bible today. But before we're done here, we're going to get to a beautiful place. So let's jump in. Now, like last week, we'll be in the book of 2 Samuel today. And I want to give you a heads up. Uh, I am going to tread lightly with this content. Several women are treated horribly in this story. And I'm not going to read those passages directly. I won't describe them in detail. Uh, I know that for some people, it's not easy to hear stories like this. Um, but I do think it's important to address this evil directly. So first, we need to revisit what happened in last week's story. Uh, we began with a time in David's life when he was at the top of his game. He, he was the king of Israel, he was powerful, he was successful, but he was also bored. And one night, he went up to the roof of his palace and he spied on a woman who was bathing. And as it turns out, this woman was Bathsheba, the wife of a man named Uriah, who happened to be one of David's loyal soldiers. But David wanted Bathsheba for himself, and he took her. He brought her to the palace, he slept with her, and she became pregnant. And then to cover up what he had done, David had Uriah killed. So, sexual assault, murder. For someone who's supposed to be a man of God, these are serious sins. And of course, God was very angry at what David had done. So God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David, and Nathan actually got through to David. He showed great remorse over his sin. He, he went to God with a broken heart, a humble heart, and he asked for forgiveness and restoration. And the Lord took away his sin. That was the good news. But there was also bad news. God told David, because of your sin, because of what you have done, because of your utter contempt for me, there will be consequences. There will be chaos and calamity and death in your family, and the sword will never depart from your house. So that was last week, and that takes us up to this week. And to follow along here, we need to meet a few main characters. Now first, over here, we have a man named Amnon. Amnon was one of David's sons. He was actually the firstborn son, the crown prince, first in line for the throne of Israel. Now, he's main character number one, but over here we have the second main character, a man named Absalom. Absalom is another one of David's sons, and after Amnon, he's second in line for the throne of Israel. And Absalom was a pretty special guy. Uh, for one thing, he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. And one of his greatest assets was this long, thick mane of hair. Uh, if you remember a guy named Fabio, that's a pretty good comparison. And Absalom, once a year, would cut his hair. And the Bible says that pile of hair would weigh about five pounds. And the Bible gives this specific description for a reason. 
This is going to come up later, so file that away. And then we need to meet one more character, a beautiful woman named Tamar. And she is a princess. She is a daughter of King David. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, the Bible tells us that David had at least 21 sons with several different women, but the Bible only names one daughter of David, and it's Tamar. It's important to know that Absalom and Tamar had the same mother, but Amnon, Amnon had a different mother. So Amnon is the half-brother of Absalom and Tamar. Are you with me? Now, here's where the story takes a dark turn. Amnon convinces himself that he is in love with Tamar. It's actually not love at all. It's just lust. Amnon becomes obsessed with Tamar. And without going into detail, he sexually assaults his half-sister. He rapes her. And uh, when you read the whole story, it is absolutely heartbreaking. Immediately after the assault, Amnon's lust turns into hate. And he orders Tamar to leave his presence. And then she spends the rest of her life as a desolate woman. She's devastated. Now, I, I have to mention this event because it, it, it affects everything that comes later. Now, here's what happens. First, Tamar's brother, Absalom, finds out what Amnon did. Naturally, he's furious. Eventually, dad, King David, also hears what happened, and he is furious too. But you know what David does? He does nothing. No punishment, no judgment, no accountability for Amnon, nothing. And that is the scenario for two years. Absalom, he won't even speak to his brother. His hate grows stronger every day. And for two years, he's waiting for his father to take some kind of action. But it never happens so Absalom develops a plan. One way or another, Amnon will pay for what he's done. And here's how the plan plays out. One day, Absalom invites David and all of his sons to come to a big party. It's a sheep-shearing party. And Absalom is like, Dad, I want all you guys to be here. This party will be amazing. It's going to be a rager. But David is like, uh, that's okay, son. No thanks. Uh, there's just too many of us. We'd be a burden to you. Uh, we, we won't be there. But Am Absalom is insistent. He says, Dad, did you not hear me? There will be sheep shearing at this party. You've got to come. But David's not interested. And so Absalom says, fine. Stay away, but at least send my brother Amnon. And David says, I don't know why you want him to come, but okay, I'll send him. And then Amnon shows up at the party. Absalom slides over to a few of his men, and he says, I want you to stay close to Amnon. He's about to get drunk, and when he does, you kill him. Absalom's men carry out those instructions perfectly, and by the end of the night, Amnon is dead. The news gets back to David. 
And the Bible says he wept bitter tears. David is rocked with grief. Now for just a second, I want to think about what Absalom did here. First, in your opinion, was it right for Absalom to be angry at Amnon? I think we could all agree that his anger was very much justified. On the other hand, though, Absalom's anger is what led him to kill his brother. So what do you think? Is anger a good thing or a bad thing? Is it morally right or is it morally wrong? Well, in and of itself, anger is neither right nor wrong. It's an emotion And it's not wrong to feel emotions. They just show up. That's how God wired us. However, an emotion becomes right or wrong based on what you do with it. And this is where Absalom crossed a line. You know, there's an irony in this story. Absalom had an interesting name with an interesting meaning. You could break that name into two parts, Ab and Salam, or more accurately, Ab and Shalom. Now you've probably heard the word Shalom. It's a Hebrew word that means peace. So the name Absalom literally means father of peace or chief of peace. And in the Bible, uh, we, uh, this word Shalom, it's not just peace as the absence of war. It's much more than that. Shalom is rest. It's well-being. It's a state of harmony between you and others. It's a state of reconciliation between you and God. So you see the irony, right? Based on Absalom's name, he should have been a person who would make peace. He should have been a person who could right a wrong in a way that would bring harmony and shalom. But Absalom doesn't live up to that name. His anger gets the best of him. You see, anger can be a great force for good or a great force for evil. The question we have to ask is this, what fuels your anger? If your anger is fueled by some kind of selfish desire or a desire to get revenge, it's probably going to be a force of evil. But it's very possible for anger to be a positive force for good. If your anger is fueled by a love for God and a love for justice and shalom, then you can surrender your anger to God and let him use it in a positive way. That's why Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. The emotion itself is not a bad thing, but it can very easily become a bad thing. And that's where Absalom landed. Yes, it was right to be angry at Amnon, but it was wrong to kill him. And before we move on, I need to point out one more thing. Did you notice? Amnon was guilty of sexual assault. Absalom was guilty of murder. Does that sound familiar? Those were the sins of David, right? Absalom and Amnon were both boys, when David sexually assaulted Bathsheba and murdered her husband. Do you think they were influenced by what their father had done? It sure looks like it. And it goes back to what I said earlier. Fatherhood is a big responsibility. It is a high calling. 
And what we do, how we live, will have a profound impact on our children, for better or for worse. But back to the story. Absalom, after the murder, he runs away from home. He knows that he's done something wrong. He took justice into his own hands when it wasn't his place to do that. So he leaves Jerusalem, he leaves Israel, and he goes to a neighboring country where he knows he will be out of the reach of his father. And Absalom lives in exile for three years. And David doesn't communicate with him, doesn't reach out to him at all. Nothing. Over time, though, David does miss Absalom. Uh, he, he longs for Absalom to come home to Jerusalem. After all, this is his son. And finally, after some crazy stuff that I won't get into, David calls Absalom back to Jerusalem. And he comes. But as soon as Absalom arrives, David gets weird again. He refuses to see Absalom. And, and for two years, Absalom just hangs out in Jerusalem with nothing to do. He keeps begging to see his father. But David won't allow him to come to the palace. Finally, after more crazy stuff that I won't get into, David agrees to meet with his son. Absalom does make his way to the palace, and he stands before his father, the king. There is so much they need to say to each other. They both need to make some apologies. They, they both need to reaffirm their love for each other. And they need to do the hard work of reconciliation. That's what should have happened. But here's what actually happened. 2 Samuel 14, 33. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Now, that's all the information we get about this meeting. And at first glance, it looks like it might have been a great thing, maybe one of those tearjerker moments. But based on what happens next, I don't believe that was the case. Yes, Absalom bows down to David, and yes, David kisses Absalom, which is a sign of blessing. But I believe this is just a formality. This is not true reconciliation. This is just going through the motions. For David... Performing some ritual is much easier than doing that hard work of reconciliation. You might remember a quote from Jesus. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And you know what? David is not making peace here. He's just keeping the peace. He's sweeping this conflict under the rug. There's a huge difference between making peace and keeping the peace. A peacemaker fights for peace. Someone who keeps the peace, they avoid conflict, they avoid confrontation. And this is just one more example of David being passive. And, you know, this characteristic, it really doesn't line up with our traditional image of David as a hero, but this is the reality. David is passive to the extreme. Let's do the math. After Amnon rapes Tamar, two years go by, David does nothing. After Absalom kills Amnon, he, he runs away. And for three years, David does nothing. 
And then once Absalom returns to Jerusalem for two years, David does nothing. Uh, when, when you add it up, that's seven years of passivity. And we have to ask, why? Because when David was younger, he was a man of action. He was brave. He did the right thing, even when it was difficult or unpopular. So what changed? Well, let's think about it. At this point in the story, David has been king for 20 years. And you know, it's not easy being king. That crown gets heavy. You're dealing with constant problems, constant threats every single day. And after a hard day, when you leave work and you go home, what do you want to do? You want to sit in the recliner and watch the game, eat a bag of Doritos, just relax for a couple of minutes. And for David, when all this chaos and conflict shows up in his family, I could see him saying, do I have to be on all the time? I've got stress at work. I've got stress at home. I can't get away from it. And so it would be easy for David to shut down. But this passivity only makes things worse. And before long, he's just paralyzed because the mess, it it seems impossible to clean up. Where do you start? How do you fix this? And you know, we might sympathize with David in some ways. But the truth is, if you're a dad, you don't get to step away from that role. Uh, You need to be the dad, whether it's convenient or not. Your kids need you. They need you to love them. They need you to speak truth into their lives. And that brings up one more reason why David might have chosen to be passive. He might have felt like he lost his moral authority because of his sin. I I, I could picture David thinking one of his boys might say, Sure, Dad, you want me to do the right thing, just like you did the right thing. I guess it's do as I say, not as I do, right? Now, I don't know if that's how David thought about it. But if it was, David should have realized that he still had something to offer. He still had truth to share. David could have taught his children that, yes, he was guilty of sin. But he had turned to God and he found forgiveness and grace And David could have showed his children that God's grace will transform your life and your relationships. God will restore our brokenness. All right, we need to wrap up this story. And I'll go through this quickly so we can get to some kind of conclusion. So after that little reunion takes place, Absalom holds a deep resentment against his father. It's not patched up. And he spends the next few years planning a rebellion. At one point, Absalom begins to openly criticize his father. He goes out in public and he says, People of Israel, we have a weak king. This government is dysfunctional. But good news, I'm happy to step into this leadership vacuum. Absalom goes out shaking hands and kissing babies. And before long, the Bible says... He stole the hearts of the people. And then finally, when the time is right, when he's gained enough public support and he's gathered an army, Absalom leads a revolution. A revolution against David, the king, his father. 
And it's immediately clear that Absalom is in a much stronger position than David. So David, the king, he leaves the palace, leaves, the, leaves Jerusalem, and escapes into the countryside with his entourage. Time go, goes by, and David gathers a pretty impressive army of his own. And everybody can see it coming. There is a big battle coming. Absalom versus David, son versus father. The battle takes place in a forest, the forest of Ephraim. And it's kind of surprising because David and his men absolutely destroy Absalom's army. There are 20,000 casualties, but one casualty in particular breaks David's heart. See, Absalom goes into battle riding a mule, which to me is kind of weird. Uh, were there no horses? Uh, but anyway, Absalom rides under a large oak tree, and his hair, remember that beautiful mane of hair? It gets caught in the branches, and that's what gets him in the end. The mule keeps running, and Absalom is left hanging in that tree by his hair. And David's general, Joab, comes up to Absalom with three javelins and drives each one into his body. Absalom dies. His rebellion is over. And a messenger goes to David and he says, Good news, king, your enemies have been defeated. And David is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What about my son? What about Absalom? A second messenger comes up right then. And he tells the king that Absalom is dead. He's been killed. And that news is like a dagger to David's heart. 2 Samuel 18, 33. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, I'd love to get us to a happy ending, but this is where we stop today. Next week, we'll wrap up this series on a very positive note, but today, we pause here at David's grief. And I'll be honest with you, I struggled to, to figure out how to apply this story to our lives. It's such a mess. Who's the good guy? What are we supposed to learn? Well, I studied and I prayed about it, and here's what came to me. David's greatest contribution was not the example of his life. Now, don't get me wrong. In some ways, David was a great example. In his younger days, he was a man of courage and bravery. He stood up against lions and bears and giants. David was also a great example in his passion for God. He truly was a man after God's own heart. Just read through the Psalms that he wrote. He had a genuine love for God, really wanted to worship him. And he also gave us a good example of confession and repentance. David's heart was completely broken over his sin. And he turned to God in humility and he found forgiveness. So David did lots of things right. But in many other ways, he was a bad example. And I don't think you need me to go back through the list. His whole life reveals the devastating consequences of sin. David also shows us that sin is not just the bad things you do. Sin is also the good things you choose not to do. David's 
passive approach as a father only compounded the problems in his family. So when you take all these things together, yes, David did leave us a powerful example. In some ways, he showed us the right way to live. In some ways, he showed us the wrong way to live. And we can be inspired by this. As dads, we can look at this story and say, I will not be passive. I will not stand by and allow women to be treated the way they're treated in this story. And I will not be silent when my kids need to hear the truth. And I will not hold back when my kids need to know that I love them no matter what. So yeah, this story could stir us to action. But I'll stand by this statement. See, any example, whether good or bad, can only get you so far. And you know why? Well, you could study the life of David, try to emulate the good things and avoid the bad things, but we're not going to get it right every time. We all have weak moments. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And that brings us to David's greatest contribution. David's greatest contribution is pointing us to Jesus. See, God chose David to fulfill a very special role in history. David was a great king by human standards, but he was the forerunner to the king of all kings. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made this promise to David. He said, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, the Jews understood that this was a prophecy about the Messiah, and they looked forward to the day when God's Messiah would free the people of Israel, save them, right all wrongs, and bring shalom to this world. A thousand years after David died, God kept this promise. In Luke chapter 1, an angel from God made a big announcement to a young virgin named Mary. Luke 1 verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The promise was fulfilled. Jesus is the king of all kings, and he made it possible for you and me to be a citizen in his kingdom. This is the good news of the gospel. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He went to the cross, and he paid the punishment that we deserve to pay because of our sins. And if you have given your life to Jesus, and you belong to him, you are forgiven and free, not just today, but for eternity. So, if you're a dad this morning, I do encourage you to be the best father you can possibly be. Strive to be a good example for your children. But more than anything else, I encourage you to point your kids to Jesus. 
Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, God has put you in a position to speak truth into the lives of your children. On one hand, you can leverage your strengths to point others to Jesus. And this is when you're doing well. You can say, I am who I am only because of the grace of Jesus. But that's not all. You can also leverage your weaknesses to point others to Jesus. When you've missed the mark, you can say, I am sorry that I got it wrong this time. But I am so thankful for the grace of Jesus. And I'm so thankful that every day he's helping me become more like him. This is the best contribution you can make in this world. You can help your children. You can help others find the freedom and the hope that you have found. Now, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not yet a citizen in this kingdom, whether you're a dad or not, I want to take this moment to point you to Jesus. Run to him. He's the one you're looking for. Let's pray. Father, uh, sometimes your word is comforting and sometimes it's disturbing, but I know every word is there for a reason. You're speaking to us. And so, Lord, I I pray that you'll help us to take away the, the lessons that you want us to hear today and that we will act based on what you have said. Lord, I pray for all the dads here. Help us to step up and be the men that you call us to be. Lord, help us to hold on to Jesus. That's where our hope comes from. And help us to share that hope with others. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.